This episode is sponsored by National Treasures Artists in Residence. National Treasures funds artist participation in artists in residence programs during their twilight years. They also forge mentorships so that expertise honed over years will be passed along one-on-one to a younger generation of artists and memorialized in a digital library. Visit nationaltreasuresair.org. On this episode, we have Kenley Neufeld. Kenley was born in Nigeria and spent a portion of his childhood growing up in Zambia. His family migrated to California eventually, where he currently resides. He studied history in college and launched a career in library sciences. He developed an interest in world religions and cultivated a passion for Buddhism. He became a member of the Order of Interbeing and also joined the Plum Village community, founded by Thich Nhat Hanh, shortly after September 11, 2001. He devotes time to building community, or Sangha, within this Buddhist tradition. Kenley, thank you so much for joining us on our show. Thank you for inviting me. It's really great to have you. I've been very impressed with um, your profile, all the things you've accomplished, and so I think this will be a real boon for our audience. Um, One of the first things I I noticed that was uh, very interesting is that you were actually born in Nigeria. Yes, my parents were uh, missionaries in Africa until I was about the age of seven. So we, we lived in, I was born in Nigeria, and then we moved back to North America for a while to Canada, and then we moved back to Zambia oh. before settling in California. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's quite the uh, the jet setter at that time. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of traveling at an early age. I don't know how my parents did it. Right. Yeah. Um, do you have siblings? I have two younger siblings and my brother's just 11 months younger than myself and my sister's five years younger. So they did some of those travels with three little ones. Wow. That's, that's really impressive. Certainly a labor of love. (laughs) Um, Now, do you have any memories of uh, Nigeria, maybe more of Zambia? More of Zambia. I remember attending school in Zambia and uh, just the neighborhood where we lived. Uh, We lived in the capital of Lusaka, yeah. Um, and re- remember visiting places like Victoria Falls and sure. uh, going out into the wilderness and seeing the wild animals and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. What was it like growing up there? Were there other uh, missionary children, so to speak? You know, probably not that many. We, uh, the school I attended was predominantly, uh, you know, African or Zambian school students and, um, so I don't recall engaging that much with uh, other kids who were who looked like me. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> and when you your family settled in California, uh, it was in Fresno. Yes. Yeah, we settled in. Well, we first went to Reedley, and, and we weren't there very long, and then we went to Fresno. And uh, I remember it being, uh, you know, a rather difficult transition coming from living in other countries. Uh, speaking with an English accent and also being, you know, mostly poor in terms of our income. So I didn't know much about American culture and, mm-hmm. and uh, definitely didn't know how uh, kids behaved. And uh, it, was, it was a tough transition, but, uh, you know, little kids can't, uh, can be pretty mean to each other at a young age. <laughs> no, that's so true. <laughs> to those of us who were different. So. Yeah. Uh, challenging time. So um, your parents were of uh, uh, English origin, it sounds like? Uh, they were Canadians. Okay. Canadians, but my whole background is German. Right. So all of my uh, 
my grandparents all spoke German and my parents spoke German. And okay. uh, even though they'd been in, in Canada for uh, since around World War One, okay. that's when they immigrated to Canada from uh, the Ukraine area. Oh, sure. And, uh, it's uh, the we're a Mennonite uh, community. So yes. uh, pretty uh, insul uh, insular in nature, you know, Mennonites, Mary Mennonites and mm -hmm. Uh, you know, things were still, they still spoke German, even though they hadn't been in Germany in, you know, generations. And um, so, yeah, it's a, you know, uh, a, I'd like to say, you know, a social justice bent, even though they tended to keep to themselves, uh, but very much a peaceful, you know, nonviolent uh, church tradition. Right. And, uh, you know, it informed a lot of my ethics and a lot of my values. As I as I grew up, are you still a member of the church? I am not. So after you know high school and um, those times, uh, we didn't really have a lot of young adults in the church at the time, and so I didn't really feel connected or rooted in uh, church. Once I got a driver's license, I decided that I wasn't going to go anymore, and uh, sort of faded away. Uh, in my teen years, uh, which went along with, you know, some, you know, uh, alcohol and drug use during those years, that gotcha. was pretty, ha pretty heavy. And so um, I drifted away from faith of any kind, uh, probably around age 17, okay. 16, 17. I appreciate the candor there. Um, given your profession, I'm tempted to uh, see that or ask the question, uh, were you an avid reader? I've uh, always been an avid reader, uh, definitely enjoy reading a great deal, and I still do. It's one of my, my favorite pastimes. Yeah. So I usually have two or three books going now. And, and uh, the, um, at that young age, I read, you know, a lot of fantasy. Oh, okay. Science fiction? Science fiction and fantasy. Mostly fantasy at that age, uh, in my teens, uh, and then moved into science fiction as I got a little bit older. Gotcha. gotcha. So now I, I stick to I stick between those sci-fi and fantasy, and uh, tend to um, pick up a nonfiction book here as well. Nice. Okay. And uh, writing is obviously a very clear avocation. When did the passion for that develop? Well, it's funny because I don't know if I ever really developed the passion to write, but I find myself as an adult comforting to do so. Um, as an undergraduate, I studied history, and as a history student you end up doing a lot of writing. Sure. So a lot of reading and a lot of writing. Yeah. And uh, so I picked up the skills of writing uh, during my college years. And uh, as I got a little bit older, um, I found that just writing helped me to get some of my ideas down on paper and as kind of a, as a healing process and understand what I'm thinking a little bit more. And if other people find it uh, valuable and interesting, then great. If yeah. not, I, I enjoyed it, so. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so you headed south to San Diego for your uh, bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. uh, what was the draw to study history? Um, well, I, I've always been a little bit fascinated with history. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, and, I, and my parents told me, you know, you should just study something you enjoy and worry about what you're going to do when you grow up later. So um, the history classes I took, I enjoy. And so then I ended up focusing on uh, those courses and uh, focusing primarily on 
American history, but also some Latin American and Central American history as well. And, uh, you know, so it was fun to be able to take a whole class on, you know, reconstruction or, mm. uh, you know, or the he economic history of the United States or, or something like that. So it was just something I enjoyed and uh, I enjoyed reading and I enjoyed writing. So it was a good fit for me in college. Yeah, yeah. nice. Um, then you, you headed to San Jose State to, uh, and you studied, focused on library science at that point. Was there a gap in between or did you go straight? Is there a gap? There wasn't much of a gap, no. I think I pretty much went straight. I might have taken one quarter off, maybe. Uh, when I finished my undergraduate degree, I um, looked around to see what I could do with my life uh, that could pay rent. And um, I had gotten a job in a library at UCSD, oh. and I loved it. You know, it was just something that felt so true and so uh right up my alley and and that meant that i got to stay among a learning environment and which is what i enjoyed was i enjoyed reading and uh, certainly you don't get to read a lot when you're a librarian because you're working but um just being around uh the material and also constantly being able to talk with people who are trying to discover something for themselves so i'm constantly able to learn something new through that process. So once I finished the undergraduate and I enjoyed the library, uh, someone there encouraged me to apply to library school. And so I did, and there I went. Nice, nice. Well, I can actually completely identify with what you just shared because when yeah. I was an undergrad, um, I also worked uh, in the library, but I chose a very specific one. The um, uh, the the library for the anthropology and archeology span ah. department, which was actually embedded in the museum of my university. Mm. Nice. And, um, what was great about that, Kenley, was that um, you had all the professors who would set aside books back in the day, right? <laughs> set aside books for, and then grad students would be coming in and then asking for this material or that material. And it would always be like, oh, what's that about? That's interesting. Yeah. And then yeah. Yeah, I'd take a read of it too. And it was like, it was mind blowing, just learning yeah. all these different areas. And, um, and the university was very active in terms of uh, digs and, and that kind of thing. So you hear about all these people going to Belize and doing these uh, various endeavors. It was, I can completely identify with uh, yeah. the joy in that. <laughs> there is a lot there. It's just, there's a, a constant flow of new information. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, so I'm wondering if these uh, university experiences was when you were first exposed to uh, meditation or Buddhism. Well, actually, my first exposure to Buddhism was uh, when I was at community college, and I um, took a world religions class that was at Palomar College, and that was my first exposure to anything really beyond my Mennonite upbringing, to be perfectly honest. Right, and right. so I got to learn about uh, Hinduism and uh, Islam and Buddhism and the portion on Buddhism really kind of, you know, planted a seed more than anything. Nice. Um, it wasn't anything that I, I wasn't in a place in my life at that time to um, embark upon some new path, uh, but it planted a seed then. And uh, I didn't pick it up again for probably another seven years, I would say. Oh. Okay. So after I, after I finished graduate school and I had begun work, um, 
and I had I had embarked upon a, a spiritual path, a, a spiritual way of living, that um, encouraged us to to seek out uh, uh, meditation practices. Mm. And so, in the mid '90s, I picked up. Uh, actually, my wife gave me the book uh, "Being Peace" by Thich Nhat Hanh. Oh, sure. And I read the book, and I was like, "Wow, this is." This is pretty amazing, and it also really aligned closely with my Mennonite roots in a lot of ways. Just the language around nonviolence and the language around love uh, just really spoke to me in a, in a deep way. And I consider that sort of my first real step towards uh, a meditation practice was then in, in the mid-90s. Wow, that's brilliant. I love the way you framed that. If we look, there are more similarities in world religions than there are differences. But uh, unfortunately, large swaths of humanity get very caught up in the differences. And yeah, in the early 2000s, I participated in an interfaith uh, activity with, in Fresno. I, was, I had moved back to Fresno at that point. Mm -hmm. And um, there was an interfaith group that each uh, week, we would attend or visit uh, a service or activity of a different faith tradition. Wow. And so we went to, a, you know, a synagogue and a mosque wow. and a Christian church. And so it was a really, and, and what I discovered through that process too was exactly what you just said, that uh, there's far more similarities between, I mean, in the root teachings of each of them, uh, far more similarities between us than there are differences. Yeah. Absolutely. Unfortunately, it gets bastardized by uh, too many people and uh, wars are waged and uh, which uh, just is uh, nonsensical from uh, where you and I sit. Um, and so um, we, had you gotten married at the time that you were back in, in Fresno? No, I got uh, I got married in the mid 90s. So okay. right. actually, my, my wife and I, we started seeing each other in the early 90s and got married in the mid 90s. And, okay. Oh, great. And so um, so you had returned to Fresno and then you also worked at San Jose State for a bit. And then it looks like around 05, you settled in Ojai. Yep. In 05, we moved to Ojai and I got a job at Santa Barbara City College. Right. Uh, where I was uh, hired as a librarian, but ended up being the library director. <laughs> so <Okay. laughs> Nice. Yeah. And you've been there for quite some time for about uh, 15 years. Yeah. 15 years. That's yeah. great. Now, and the draw to Ojai, I read that um, you had been a frequent visitor to Ojai. Yep. My wife is, this is her hometown. Okay. So, All right. Yeah. So we finally managed to move here after many years of uh, not being able to afford to move here. And then we finally got lucky and here we are. So. Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful part of the world. And it certainly is. Yeah. The hiking is incredible. Yeah. And lots of lots of spiritual uh, seekers here in Ojai. It's definitely one of those uh, meccas of uh, spiritual exploration. You know, right. Krishnamurti had settled here with his That's uh, right. community. So. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned this book that um, your wife had given you that kind of opened you to uh, to Buddhism and meditation. Um, would love to dive into that a bit more because I uh, just uh, I noticed that you um, became a member of the is it Order of Interbeing? Correct, Order of Interbeing. Yep. 
Yeah, and then um, uh, became a part of the Plum Village community. Maybe if you could share for our listeners uh, about that and, and the reason you chose uh, that specific community. Well, sure. So that community is uh, was founded by Thich Nhat Hanh. Right. And so when I uh, picked up that book in the mid-90s, I, wanted, I uh, started to look a little bit more into that community and uh, in the ni- around 98, I went to a, a public event with uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and the monks and nuns of Plum Village, and that was in Oakland. And I was really moved by the, the community, and in, in Buddhism, we call it the Sangha. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was really moved by the Sangha that was present there, and uh, felt like it was... Um, a community that I could devote a little bit more attention to. Uh, but at that time, I was still um, practicing meditation by myself. So I had not connected with any group of people to sit with, but I was sitting pretty regularly on my own. And um, that continued until 2001. And uh, when uh, September 11th happened, it really was a moment of uh, catapulting me into uh taking the next step in my practice. I realized at the time that um, it was really important that people be in community and that we, we work together and that my meditation practice could only go so far uh, sitting on my own. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh had just released a book called Anger. And I was reading that and I was experiencing anger. I was experiencing sorrow, as many of us in the U.S. were uh, at that time. And so shortly after uh, September 11th, I reached out to our uh, organization and asked, hey, is there anybody in Fresno who's practicing meditation in uh, the Plum Village uh, tradition? And they said, well, no, no, but there is one person who has also contacted us. Uh, who, who is interested in, in sitting with another person. So I contacted her and, and we started a little so- local sangha there uh, in uh, late 2001 and uh, began sitting together uh, for the next few years. And uh, at that time, I also went over to uh, Deer Park Monastery in uh, Escondido and visited the monastery, which is where uh, the monks and nuns live. So there's, there are three, three practice centers here in North America. There's one in San Diego. There's one in um, uh, Mississippi. And okay. there's, there's one in New York. Okay. And then, of course, we have our, our main center, which is in Plum Village, uh, which is in France, uh, and another center in Germany. And then there's a few in Asia as well. So I kind of jumped in two feet fully into this community after 9-11 and just found a really a deep connection with the sangha and with the practice and so uh, a few years later uh, I, I was mentored uh, by a few other uh, folks in the community to uh, become an, a member of the core community so the members of the core community is called the order of interbeing And uh, the Order of Interbeing was originally founded in 1966 in Vietnam with a very small group of people uh, that was doing uh, social justice work there in Vietnam, uh, serving the the local community. And 
by 2005, it had grown to probably, you know, a few hundred or more uh, people around the world who were uh, members of this uh, core community. So it's it's lay people, so non-monastic uh, folks. Although monastics are also order of intervene members. Okay. When I say those few hundred, which is now probably closer to a thousand, they are mostly uh, lay uh, students of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. and um, so that's kind of how I landed in the in the community. And and being an order of intervene member uh, kind of means that we will continue to build Sangha, so build community. And so that's what I've been doing the last 15 years, uh, trying to build Sangha. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, um, and I know that you had been doing some workshops and teachings uh, hosted at at your home. Um, That must be a challenge in the current environment. Um, How are you able to achieve or build community currently? Well, right now our lo- our local group is not meeting at the at this time, but I do know that some of the other sanghas that I'm familiar with are meeting over Zoom, and so they do the meditation over Zoom. I have been mostly doing um, sangha building through other means. I mean, through Zoom, but not with my local community. So I've been uh, engaged with. Uh, some other sanghas. So I've presented or, or t- given a talk at a group in uh, Montana and a group in LA and a group in San Diego. And so that's kind of where I've been focusing my attention lately. Uh, and with the murder of uh, George Floyd, I've been working with some uh, members of our community in looking deeply into how we can respond and what kind of action we can take within our community uh in response to injustice and oppression in the world okay great i'm curious if you're willing to share some of the um thoughts or conclusions that uh, your community has had around what actions could be taken yes so we i don't know if i can give you conclusions but i can give you thoughts (laughs) perfect (laughs) so uh you know i think right now we're focusing on um two kind of areas one is the external certainly you know how do we participate as a buddhist community in uh social action to uh address the injustices in the world and so we have a long history in our community of doing that already uh and our teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, of course also has a very uh, deep history with uh anti-war uh, efforts during um the vietnam war vietnam, right? So, you know, how do we present or how do we uh, participate in, for example, street actions that uh, may possibly turn violent or may not, but how do we be a social uh, and how do we be a peaceful presence in those spaces? The other area that I think is more important for, for me is what are we doing within our community to uh, offer an inclusive um, practice community for anyone who wishes to join and participate can do so. And so taking a look at what are, what are the processes that we have in place to become an order of intervene member, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, do we uh, encourage and welcome conversation around uh, topics of oppression and uh, racism and white supremacy 
And if we don't, then how can we add that to our process? Um, taking a look at our leadership structure and seeing that we are predominantly a white organization, uh, set aside, well, not even set aside, but recognizing at the same time that we're a very Vietnamese organization too. So within the monastic side of the community, it's mostly Vietnamese. Right. Whereas in the lay community, it's uh, mostly white people. Right. And so looking into uh, the fact that we don't have a lot of uh, black and brown practitioners, and what can we do so that folks can feel like they can find a home here if they are? Mm -hmm. And how do we offer our retreats in such a way that people who come uh, can feel safe and supported? And so, for instance, do we hold retreats specifically for people of color? Mm -hmm. I, I believe that we should, and we have, but I think we need to do it more. Yeah. Uh, or when we have a, a mixed retreat that we have affinity groups or, or groups, small groups of discussions so that uh, people of color can meet together mm. and uh, feel that uh, safety net that's, that can be built into our, our activities. Yeah. So we've done some experimenting with that. I think we need to do more. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the kinds of things that a, a few of us have been having conversations about mm. uh, over the last uh, six weeks or so uh, since... Uh, well, specifically, you know, catapulted like a lot of people by by the murder of George Floyd. So, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, you know, Kenley, uh, hearing your story and your, your journey, it would feel like growing up, there were principles around spirituality that um, maybe really resonated with you. Um, but maybe this, the, the format under which it was... Um, I guess executed or practiced um, didn't um, sit well with you, and hence you began in your uh, mid to late uh, te teens to to move away. But then you found this kind of spiritual home uh, within um, the Buddhist tradition, and particularly the, the Plum Village community. Is that am I grasping this the right way? You are, and you know now in in my fifties, I look I can look back and say, you know if if I had encountered other people in the Mennonite community that were thinking like me at the time, mm. I could have just as easily remained within mm. the Mennonite right. community. Right. So it, it wasn't that I had a lot of, you know, anger or animosity towards my, my religious upbringing. And even, and today I have a, a, a deep respect for it. Um, it's just that circumstances presented themselves in a different way and my path took, you know, a different route and, you know, it, over the years I have discovered other, uh, people of my, uh, age rate, age group who, who are Mennonites, practicing Mennonites or Anabaptists. And if I had encountered them at an earlier age, you know, I probably would have found a home there too. Wow. Okay. So, um, I try not to question it too much. Uh, just try to have a little bit of faith that, you know, I can believe in uh, the roots of my uh, religious tradition. And um, 
Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's yeah. Well, and that certainly speaks to the universality aspects of multiple religions that we were talking about uh, just now. So that's great. Um, you mentioned about how as an adult, you're finding more of an urge to to write. Uh, and I've been on your website, but uh, for our listeners, what, what are the topics and areas that um, you feel particularly compelled to write about? Well, you've already seen what I write about, but uh, <laughs> uh, I think my two, my two main topics are probably uh, uh, around white supremacy mm -hmm. and uh, environmental topics. So yeah. I do it on the website. I do a combination of things. So because I do a lot of reading, I like to read a lot of long articles. Uh, I, I try to regularly share uh, some of the material that I've been reading. And I don't really write much with those. But then on the flip side, I do write uh, short pieces that typically address racism, white supremacy. I've done that the last few years and environmental topics. So if I'm uh, feeling really motivated, I might write about practice and about meditation and uh, about how we can use uh, or apply uh, meditation practices to uh, navigate the world in a more uh, peaceful and harmonious manner. Yeah. So yeah. those uh, are the kind of the range of topics there. So Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I find it fascinating, um, Kenley, about, uh, you know, you're writing about white supremacy and your perspective and, and life journey, how in that crucial age when a lot of our unconscious biases are formed because it's being modeled to us, um, you were a minority. You were surrounded by by African children, uh, and, and and so um, you know coming. We talked a little bit about coming to Fresno and that bit of cultural shock. Um, so uh, you know, a lot of it is it safe to say that it, it ran counter to what was kind of in you in terms of how the order of the world should be. Yeah, well, it definitely gave me, a, you know, a different perspective than, you know, your typical American because growing up overseas until, I was still a pretty young age, but living overseas until I was seven um, did invite a different perspective into the world. But at the same time, I am still a white male mm -hmm. and my community is predominantly white mm -hmm. uh even though even even though growing up in fresno i lived in a in a uh, a brown neighborhood mostly and uh i think you know i was acculturated very quickly into uh, the american way of seeing things whether yeah. i i knew it or not whether yeah. i was conscious of it or not uh, the real the real wake-up moment for me around uh, racism occurred in, um, must have been around 1993, mm -hmm. and I moved uh, moved to San Francisco, okay. and I moved into a black neighborhood, mm -hmm. and I had never been around black people since I was seven, right. and one day I, I was looking, I was walking down the street and a, 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 a black male was walking down on the same side as me. And my mind said things about that person that surprised me oh, wow. that I was like, where did that fear come from? Yeah. 
you know? And so that was the moment really for me where I, you know, began my path, my journey into trying to understand my own internalized racism mm -hmm. uh, because of that moment with this person, my neighbor, you know, walking down the street and I had this fear in me about him wow. and he didn't do anything. But because I grew up in this community, in this society, essentially, yeah. Yeah. I was told that I should be afraid of this person, mm. you know, and for whatever reason, maybe it was, you know, a, a God moment, uh, you know, something came into me and said, hey, take a look at this, Nice, yeah. you know, so it was, uh, so yeah, so even though I grew up, at, you know, overseas, uh, which may have given me some uh, perspective that uh, others who hadn't uh, had, um, I still am definitely an American, enculturated in gotcha. uh, the white supremacy that exists in our society. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, and um, we're actually both Gen X. I'm I'm 43. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a little older. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm at the tail end of it, so the bulk is uh, most of the Gen Xers are, are in their fifties. Yeah. Um, uh, so interestingly, my dad studied here in the U.S. for a while, and then I actually was born in Germany, um, where he was uh, doing a postdoctoral fellowship, and uh -huh. I met up with him from from India, and then we um, migrated to the states when I was young. I was three or four. Yeah. Uh, when, when we came here. So, but uh, I appreciate your, your sharing about that experience in San Francisco, Kenley. I think it's those realizations that are the key to um, uh, catalyst for change. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to continue with the writing theme, um, you've, uh, you're editor of this publication on Medium, Mindfulness and Meditation. Tell us about how that uh, came about. Well, that was just kind of me playing on Medium one day uh, when they launched. <laughs> so shortly after Medium launched, I went went on there and I created the mindfulness and meditation uh, page. I don't even know what they call those things on Medium. Do you know what they call Publications, them? I think. Publications, that's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so um, I haven't done a lot of, uh, you know, soliciting uh, content for that page. Uh, it was just sort of, uh, let's try this out and see how it works and, so yeah, I do that publication, and then I also uh, manage the Order of Intervene website, where we also publish stuff as well. So mm -hmm. I ask people to send us content to uh, post on there. So. Great, great. Well, and uh, you also do consulting uh, on uh, in change management. Uh, share with us about that. Yeah, so you know, I kind of put myself out there to be available to work with others in that uh, regard. I haven't done uh, a great deal of uh, work with that. The the last one was, gosh, it's been a few it's been a few years. And I went to Philadelphia to a college there, and they were they were struggling with some, uh, well, personnel issues in their library. And um, so I went and spent a couple days there and interviewed people and and met with folks and then essentially wrote up a report on what I thought they needed to do. Mm -hmm. So it was really up to them whether they wanted to implement it or not. Right. Uh, and sometimes it's just a, a voice of, of, um, you know, external uh, person to offer them a, a direction to go. Sure. Um, well, I went to college. My work, and been, my work has been mostly full time with uh, Santa Barbara city college. So I haven't done a great deal of, of uh, stuff in that. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, I went to college in Philadelphia, so I'm curious, are you, can you share which client that was? I probably shouldn't. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Great. Well, um, so, but uh, in terms of clients that would be most meaningful to you, um, what types of clients would be ideal? Well, clients who want to uh, bring a little bit for, because I become because I come from a, a mindfulness based background. Yeah. Um, individuals would be the best uh, type of client, a, a person who would be interested in uh, taking a look at how they uh, lead an organization or lead a, a unit and see how they might bring the skills of uh, mindfulness into those uh, interactions. And so I, I really believe that change, change within or, an organization calls for a lot of listening. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just don't really have the, the skill or the capacity or the interest perhaps to, to listen. And so I would spend time with an individual who, who wants to cultivate that and, and attend to that effort to listen to what the people in the organization are saying or within that specific unit or that specific department. And, um, you know, I, I've, in my work, I brought about, you know, some pretty significant uh, changes. And so I just bring a lot of experience in that process, what that process might look like. And I really believe that the work that I've done at Santa Barbara City College in particular, that uh, I couldn't have done without my uh, meditation and mindfulness practice it really has afforded me a great benefit to navigate difficulty with individuals and within units. And I, I'm not sure if I would have ended up being doing what I was doing if I, if I um, hadn't had that uh, meditation practice to support me through that process. So I just recognized too that I didn't fully take my own medicine. And so uh, while I did maintain a very uh, grounded and consistent meditation practice, um, I ended up working too many hours. And, um, you know, I found myself working 60, 70 hours a week, which was not uh, sustainable. And, um, you know, I spent five years as a, as a dean at the college, and at the conclusion of those five years, I realized that I couldn't continue this uh, work management for myself and uh, resigned from my dean position and went back to working in the library, uh, which was a, a great decision for me. And it's one that, you know, just butts right up against everything that we're told in society about how our careers are supposed to look, you right. know? You know, I had done everything right. I had been growing, 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 getting better and better and being promoted and being promoted. And I could have continued on that path, but 
because of my my practice, I realized that it was not sustainable for me, mm-hmm. and and so to to be able to return to a position that carried a little bit less uh, responsibility, a little less stress was the right choice uh, to move forward with. And so that's where I am today with my life. Oh, that's really great. Um, it's interesting that uh, during this time of COVID where we have to work from home, um, I think it's been highlighted for a lot of people, um, just work-life balance and how imbalanced it had been for so many of us. Um, hopefully people will have the uh, forethought and insight that you had <laughs> and uh, align themselves better with what their values truly are. Um, and in some ways, Kenley, this podcast is about in trying to inspire people to make different life choices by highlighting those who have made these uh, life choices and uh, and we can hear how it's worked out. So uh, especially I look at the unemployment rate. I mean, so many people who've been laid off or furloughed um, and, and the number of memes or jokes that are made about how horrible office life is. Um, if there is that level of dissatisfaction, there could be a path to find some greater purpose or sense of fulfillment. And yeah. so hopefully we carry through these lessons and then, and don't just go back to uh, <laughs> our old ways of behaving. It'll be interesting to see what happens when this is all over. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, just uh, you're given your professional expertise and the time you've spent and, and, managing libraries in a library setting. Um, you know, it, it, historically, libraries have been such an important storehouse of knowledge. And I think even back to like the, the library in Alexandria and, uh, and in other places. And of course, when fires were set, it, it was it decimated the, the, the recording of, of that knowledge for future generations. Um, as we move to our, our digital world, what, what role do you see libraries will play going forward? Well, they'll continue to play the role they always have, which is helping uh, people to navigate the information world mm. and to discover and learn new information. So the, the books are simply a medium, uh, just as the digital platform is a medium. Mm. And, uh, the needs are great uh, for people to understand, to learn how to um, think critically about what they're taking a look at. So, uh, and also to recognize that, you know, that the, that bias has always existed in print, uh, certainly. Uh, But I think the digital world has exasperated that bias in a great uh, number of ways. Uh, The fact that, you know, people can publish just about anything, anywhere, uh, you know, a medium is a good example, uh, that may or may not be accurate or true. And so um, I think the role of a librarian uh, in libraries is to help people to navigate those types of complexities and uh, find a way to, you know, think critically about the information that's uh, being provided to them. And, and, and I think Google's a, a Google's a perfect example of a platform that uh, ca- carries some inherent uh, bias based on their algorithms. Mm. And so, but nobody thinks about it. And also they're the dominant uh, search tool on the planet, yeah. uh, even though there are others that work well. 
uh, people tend to go there and uh, you know, there's, if they don't understand how to, you know, look at a result uh, in a way that uh, helps you to question the content, um, then you're just, you're not, you're just getting information and it may, may or not be helpful or, or true. So. Gotcha. Well, I appreciate that. It's great perspective. Um, I also think about how um, kind of in my day, our day was Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, today, uh, my, <laughs> the, the equivalent source of info is Wikipedia for, uh, yep. for my kids, our yep. kids. Um, uh, how do you feel about uh, Wikipedia as a source? <laughs> You're giving me two of the perennial library questions that everyone who's not a librarian who likes to ask. Um, what are libraries doing and what about Wikipedia? Well, you know, I, I use Wikipedia. Do you use Wikipedia? I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, we look at it with, uh, you know, what kind of content are we getting from it? You know, what are we what are we asking? You know, so in a lot of cases, it's a very perfect and useful tool to use, you know, you know, find out about an actress or a movie or a book or a location, uh, all those kinds of things you're going to, you know, uh, find some information on that's probably true. You know, uh, you go there and you look up quantum theory and you'll probably get a nice background sheet, right. uh, you know, that gives you some good background information on quantum theory and uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but then you got to look at the the citations at the bottom and go look at the actual material to dig deeper if you want to learn more. So uh, I'm not an anti I'm not an anti Wikipedia person. So. <laughs> do Do you feel like their uh, editorial process is is robust? Well, it's it, anybody can go in there and do stuff. You know, I have a Wikipedia account and I've edited pages. Okay. You don't even have to create an account. You can actually go and just click edit and just start changing things. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, they do have people who are obsessed with Wikipedia, volunteers who are obsessed with the platform. And they do look and read what people are writing and make sure things are cited, cited correctly. Uh, that's one of the newer things they've added over the over the years to, you know, cite other sources. Um, but I think that the uh, the Wikipedians um, is I think is mostly a male uh, group of people. Mm. So um, that's what I've read. Interesting. And you know, having your editors mostly men creates its own inherent bias exactly so yeah. um Absolutely. and i think they're aware of it and they're trying to get more women i guess but you know like with anything you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt you know sure yeah. when you read something in the new york times and then you go read something in uh the washington post or or the wall street journal it might be all about the same topic but you're going to get totally different perspectives on it sure. yeah absolutely absolutely Great. No, I appreciate that. Um, you have two children, as uh, I mentioned earlier. Um, tell us about them. Yeah, well, I have a 16-year-old, and she's a, a junior, going to be a junior this year in high school. And uh, she is not, um, she's not particularly happy with the online medium mm -hmm. for classes. But here in our county, where the schools are starting online uh, next month, 
uh, or in August, I should say. I don't know when this recording will happen. <laughs> <laughs> Good catch. <laughs> and, um, but it's starting online, and so she's going to have to uh, adjust to that. Uh, but she's a good kid. And then my son's 20 and he, uh, he is uh, on the autism spectrum okay. and he just finished high school and uh, he's a great kid also. They're both great kids. That's great. That's a great accomplishment to, yeah. to finish high school. That's great. We're, we're proud of the, you know, the work that we've done with those two and very happy with how they've uh, turned out. Sometimes we wonder, you know, what we, uh, what role we had to play in that, but I suspect we had some role. So <laughs> they're good kids. Yeah. And have they um, had tendencies towards uh, meditation and Buddhism? Are they part of the Plum Village community? Well, their whole lives they've gone to the monastery. Right. So they, they, are, they are very familiar with Plum Village community and they're familiar with meditation. Uh, my son, you know, I think it's a little bit too much for him. Yeah. Uh, but my daughter has definitely become involved with meditation a little bit. And um, she really loves going to the monastery and, and is really disappointed that during the summer, there's usually a family retreat every summer. Mm. And there's also a teen camp every summer. Okay. And she was super looking forward to those yeah, this last summer and yeah. they both got canceled. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's unfortunate. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah you know, try to remember that our meditation practice is something that can help us to uh, come back to the, the present moment and to be able to uh, recognize what's present in the here and the now. Mm. And, you know, from time to time, we still think about our past and we also think about the future and that's okay. And the idea is to not get too, too caught up in those two uh, things, but rather to recognize that uh, regardless of what is happening in the world, there's also beauty in the world as well. I keep a little um, cactus plant here by my computer that I like to look at when I'm working on the computer. And, you know, when I need a moment of peace, you know, I might look over at the cactus plant and just give it a little smile and do a gentle in-breath and out-breath and realize that uh, there's beauty here too. So well said. That's excellent. That's a great way to end. (laughs) Kenley, this has been such a great conversation. Really appreciate your time today. It's wonderful to have you on the show.